Hello, my name is Noah Solisic. Um, I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues. I am also a political science major. Uh, today, I have the opportunity to work on the event Sueño Americano or Sueño Republicano, Latino voters in 2020, 2022, and beyond. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Bernard Fraga, an author and professor of political science at Emory University. Dr. Fraga, thank you and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, I, I thought I would start out asking you about maybe your career journey, whatever you wanted to mention uh, about that. I, I'm a poli-sci major, so naturally I enjoy these things, but um, for our audience as well. How did you find yourself um, a political science author, but also a professor? Um, have these issues like always been a part of your life? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I grew up in a very political family. You know, um, my mom actually is a, she's an immigrant herself, mm -hmm. um, but from Europe, actually from Belgium. And, um, you know, Belgium has very contested politics and um, issues of identity that are different from the U.S. in many ways, but have resulted in kind of a fractured political system, um, not terribly dissimilar in some ways from where we are today. Right. Uh, my dad, you know, um, who is also a political scientist, my mom was too, but my dad was a political scientist. Um, you know, he's Mexican-American, so I'm half Mexican-American. And so he actually um, spurred kind of my interest in the politics of the Latino population here in the U.S., um, mostly because of his life experience, my experience too, but his experience growing up in South Texas facing discrimination. And, you know, my understanding from a very early age that, you know, the past is not really the past when we talk about discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin. And, um, you know, I always was kind of interested in politics and had that these kind of perspectives in the back of my mind, but when I got to college and uh, did my undergrad work at Stanford, um, you know, the campus um, issues of race and identity were very, very salient there. Yeah. And I think it really changed my perspective from seeing politics as something that was kind of external, something that happened in the world that I would participate in, to something that I wanted to really educate others right. about and follow in the footsteps of my parents, but also um, a potential avenue for empowering uh, my community and the Latino community in particular. Absolutely. So I think that the combination of life experience, you know, some guidance and awareness of these issues for my parents, but also just, you know, growing up as a politically aware person in a very kind of contentious period of time, um, you know, really um, got me into politics and into political science in particular. Yeah. I, I feel that way in, in how I got involved in, in terms of just my interest. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how, how you were formed by that. Um, mm -hmm. And then connecting with that informant, trying to empower your, your backgrounds and educate the population, is that kind of your inspiration for your book? Well, you know, that's a good, um, it's a great question. And I think that, you know, the, the context for my kind of graduate work is super critical to understand. Um, I finished my undergraduate in the spring of 2008. Um, during the contested primary election between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for the Democratic primary, and that was a long time ago, I know, for many of the listeners. <laughs> but, you know, as a senior in college, I mean, this was a kind of seen as a watershed moment um, coming out of the Bush years. You know, the idea is we guaranteed, you know, I couldn't run for re-election to have a new president. Right. And there was a lot of, you know, hope and understanding in the spring of, 20, of 2008 that, you know, the Democrats would probably win. And so there was a lot of activism on campus, and this primary was seen as really critical. And then you have the financial crisis of 2008. I had already applied and been accepted to graduate school, so I knew I was heading there, but I saw a lot of friends, you know, lose their jobs, all their yeah. jobs, and kind of eye banking. And 
Um, you know, it wasn't quite like COVID-19, but at the time we really thought this is a, a huge economic and global economic crisis yeah. that was going to shape the millennial generation, Joel Pardo. And then, you know, fall 2008, you know, the election of President Obama um, and high black voter turnout being identified as one of the main causes there. High youth turnout too, but especially, again, this watershed moment for the African-American community. Um, really, that was when I was beginning my research journey, made me think about would we see the same pattern of high turnout for Latino Americans, Asian Americans, if they had a candidate from the racial and ethnic group right. running for office, nominated and perhaps winning as well? So while there wasn't, you know, everything that was in my dissertation, it certainly informed what I thought of as important questions and ways of shaping or thinking about how um, American politics could be shaped going forward. Right. So I would say, you know, my book, which focuses on racial and ethnic differences in turnout, the 2008 election and then later on the 2016 election, as I was finishing up my book, were kind of the bookends for this period of a lot of hope, but also um, a lot of failures um, in terms of this kind of transformation of American politics into one that was more racially uh, egalitarian. Right. So, the, I mean, yeah, exactly. And your, your book is, is certainly more broad, but touches on those topics. And I wonder, that brings us kind of to tonight's event, is that... Did you want to seek out a topic that was more focused on Latino populations, um, Latinx populations, um, or was it just kind of something that you were like, oh, I, here it is, I should talk about this? Yeah, so I mean, I've been working on this project actually from before the you know, November 2020 election. Yeah. A couple of co-authors, Emily West, who was over at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, Yamil Velez, um, great friend and colleague who's over at Columbia University now. You know, I reached out to them in the summer of 2020, when we started seeing some polling data, and it was reported, you know, that indicated that it looked like Latinos in particular were starting to trend more in a little bit more Republican direction. Yeah. This was surprising for a number of reasons, given what we saw during the Trump presidency. Exactly. And I'll be talking about this more in the talk, but, you know, it's important to note, we started this before seeing the results of 2020. Right. It's clear Joe Biden was going to win, but it ended up being that, you know, Trump got a lot more support from Latinos than even we could have predicted from before, um, before the election. And then, you know, we've been working on this. It's under review right now. It's not published yet. But I would say since then, there have been these narratives of um, Latino voters trending Republican um, despite Trump. And in the talk I'll provide tonight, I'm going to argue that it's actually... Uh, because of Trump in some ways. There's a, a surge in Latino support for Republicans up and down the ticket. Um, it's in some ways because of Trump's rhetoric, uh, not despite um, the kind of inflammatory stances on immigration that he takes. That is an interesting perspective. I, okay, perfect. I'm really excited to hear that. And then I wanted to I wanted to kind of take a bit of a sidebar. I was really interested in something you wrote in your bio. Your bio. Um, I wonder if you could speak on the process of serving as an expert witness on some of your cases. That sounded really interesting to me. Yeah, so, you know, as a professor of political science, you know, I get asked to comment about politics, you know, all the time for the press and, you know, doing doing podcasts like this, right? But, you know, one of the other parts of my job, beyond teaching research and this kind of media appearances, service to the institution, you know, um, when you study issues um, that are currently... Um, very much in kind of the under legal scrutiny, like voting rights and uh, voter suppression, gerrymandering, other topics. Right. You get asked to serve as an expert witness, and what that entails is, um, you know, for the plaintiffs or de- defendants, depending, you know, being asked to provide kind of an academic but really a kind of neutral perspective yeah. 
um, on a set of issues. Now, my work is, tends to be more quantitative, so I do quantitative analyses related to voting rights, and then that information is compiled into a report and used by lawyers to formulate arguments um, regarding the legality, um, the potential impact of, or um, the known impact of um, certain provisions. So I'm serving as an expert witness. Um, I've served for a number of cases, but one right now in Georgia that it's gotten a lot of attention, and you'll be hearing more about it soon. But um, it's exciting. It's a very different pace of work. It's very fast-paced. Um, it's something where I really have to be careful to separate out the kind of academic and certainly teaching and student kind of stuff from this, you know, work because it could be seen as legal advocacy. Right. But again, my goal is not to advocate for a particular side directly, it's instead to, to formulate a kind of neutral fact-based analysis that can then be used to produce, in theory at least, better legal outcomes, more informed legal outcomes. Right. So again, you know, um, I see it as a great honor, um, the same as speaking at events like for the Clark Forum, um, a great honor to be asked to weigh in on some of these very controversial legal questions. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to comment on it from the outside, but to be the legal advocate there that must be really we'll cool. see yeah. we'll see yeah that's really yeah. cool um well you mentioned you get asked a lot about american politics i want to be the same um polarization is something that gets mentioned a lot in terms of even a political science sense but also just in like a news sense i feel like it's a term that gets thrown around a lot um i wanted to kind of ask your opinion about this do you see this nation as, as polarized is, it a, is there a different term um and what do you kind of hope for the future well, so, you know, polarization, which that's the right term. I mean, that's a term we use in political science yeah. to describe this, like, movement of uh, the, well, it depends, but generally we think of it as the voters or the electorate, the population in the U.S., the mass, right, the citizenry, moving to ideological or issue-based or other kinds of kind of extremes, yeah. right? It's like a magnet, right? So polarizing means, like, separating, kind of. I'm not a physicist, but I hope I have that you know, recently, however, there used to be debates in political science about the extent of polarization. Is it something that's just happening with elected officials, or is it happening with the public? Right. Those debates have largely been settled. Now the question is, what characterizes this polarization? And, you know, the kind of leading theories today focus on a type of polarization called affective <laughs> polarization. Not effective, but affective with an A, which is really this polarization that is leading to a kind of animosity. Um, a partisan animosity where Democrats and Republicans don't just feel like they can't get along pol politically, but feel like they can't get along or even be in the same room as each other right. socially. So that kind of social separation or distance, um, which takes on a new meaning in the kind of world of COVID, mm -hmm. social distance, but you know, leading to kind of animosity, um, that's really what political scientists and the general public, I think, are most concerned about. Right. Because it feels like the country is separating, um, not just can't agree on you know what issues or what should be voted on, et cetera, et cetera, which candidates to vote for, but really feeling like Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives live in different kind of worlds. Right. Um, that's troubling, and I think you know while the focus of my work has largely been on kind of um, issues of race and ethnicity, that has been identified as a source of contention that's leading to this kind of affective polarization. And uh, we'll see what this means going forward, but I know a lot of my students, and I'm sure here at Dickinson, the same story, a lot of students are really concerned about what this means for the future. That is why I asked you about it, because it, in my eyes, it, it, that's when it becomes really hard to have like political debate when it becomes more than just politics. But um, yeah, I was interested to hear your, your opinion. Kind of connecting with that, uh, 
the Imagining Democracy Lab at Emory. You and a colleague have recently received a pretty amazing grant to, to start this program. What, do you, what are your hopes for this? Honestly, will you speak a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So um, along with Professor Carol Anderson, who's in the Department of History and African American Studies at Emory, um, we have received a large grant, about a half a million dollar grant, from the Mellon Foundation, Humanities Focus, that's what they tend to find. I'm a social scientist and a quantitative social scientist of that. But Professor Anderson and I have this kind of goal, maybe even a dream, of working together to build a space to better understand outside of the academy, in the public, especially in Georgia and in Atlanta, you know, um, how underserved communities underrepresented historically discriminated against groups, African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, but also young people, other disenfranchised groups, have thought about democracy, what they aspire to get out of democracy, yeah. how institutions can work toward making sure all voices are heard, but also how citizens can empower themselves and learn to interact in those pre-existing institutions, build new institutions that can foster a kind of um, democratic flourishing where, like you're saying with polarization, all voices can be heard, but especially where citizens can feel like government, society more broadly, but especially our governmental and electoral institutions can work to advance um, their interests or at least hear um, what they want to get out of politics. The basic services, the basic functioning of democracy, we feel has been undermined in some ways by polarization, but also by institutions that are less responsive than they should be right. in terms of democracy, in terms of the people um, having power. And so we're trying to combine a kind of academic perspective with also a practitioner perspective. Grassroots organizers will be involved um, in kind of a collaborative effort, students, faculty, and organizers on the ground in Atlanta and other places, um, to just understand, you know, what do, what do people want out of democracy? What do they dream of? That's the imagining part. Um, so a lot of it, obviously, for, you can hear from the sound of it, is, is something that is going to be built on what organizers, students want, and how we can kind of come down from the ivory tower and really um, use academic understanding for good. But, but we're really hoping, especially in the charged political moment we're in, to build bridges and build understanding across these kind of divided groups and um, really see how we can bring people back into uh, the political process. That's so exciting. That's something I think a lot of, really, everywhere should have. Yeah, yeah, we're hoping so, and we're hoping that being in Georgia and being in Atlanta in particular yeah. is a great place to do it, given the attention to politics there and the fact that really underserved communities are driving this tremendous political change in Georgia. Sounds great to me. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, well, I, I wanted to say, like, and I, I think I've already answered a little bit, but um, what do you hope is next for you? Do you have any plans for future writing, areas of expertise? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I have a lot of projects going on right now. The Imagine Democracy Lab is one of them. I imagine so. Also working hard, received a few grants in this direction to um, enable more data collection to really, again, understand what's leading to individuals, especially young people, uh, minoritized communities, to become engaged with politics and also what's leading to far too many Americans to be disengaged, to feel alienated with the political process. Is there anything we can do about that? You know, that's where I want to turn next. My book, The Turnout Gap, um, as you mentioned, you know, came out in 2018. That book identifies problems. It identifies disparities in voter turnout that have you know, persisted for many, many years. 
I explore solutions, some, but mostly in saying the solutions we think will lead to big gains and turnout probably aren't going to do it. Right. Um, so I want to know why. Why aren't Americans voting? We just had record turnout in 2020. That was after my book was published, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, about a third of Americans who could vote didn't. Um, if the 2020 election isn't going to do it, if 2022, 2018 aren't going to do it, what's it going to take to lead to broader voter engagement in the U.S.? And honestly, I think it's going to take talking to people and learning about what they feel like they're missing in democracy and what would lead to them being engaged. So really all of my research is in that direction, is really understanding how to stimulate political engagement, political involvement, regardless of party or you know specific interests, how to get more people involved and engaged. And um, I'm just hoping to contribute a little bit to those conversations. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, well, that is the end of my questions, but I always want to say, like, is there anything else you want to mention, anything I didn't say, anything you get to talk about that you want to say? Yeah, I mean, not really. I'll just say that, you know, I think for any students or other members of the community that are out there listening, um, you know, if you're feeling disheartened, dispirited with the current state of politics in in the U.S. and Pennsylvania and wherever in your community, um, you know, get involved. Um, Really get involved. There are more opportunities than you think, um, is at least what I've seen. Um, There are many, many, many ways you can get involved in the political process beyond voting. Um, be engaged, be involved, be an advocate for your interests. Don't think that it's just you. Um, if you have a particular set of concerns, there's probably others out there that share at least some of those concerns. Get involved, get active, make change in your communities. That's where this all starts. So thank you. Thank you.